Does it work? Yes. No, you know why I don't want to wait? Because if I begin while some people are still coming in, then I make them feel guilty a little bit, and I get an, a psychological advantage, you know. It's always, I mean, that's how I was taught when secret police, communist secret police trained me how to terrorize people, as some people think. Okay, now today is a big disappointment because I will, two days ago, it was really, I got totally confused, I was tired, I jumped from one topic to the other. Now today it will be much more boring because I will really do something that I hate to do. I will really systematically go into the notion of superego in a boring way, maybe repeating some stuff that you already know, but it will be much more systematic and so on. Okay, so who are the people? There will not be enough people to feel guilty. I. No, okay, whatever. Okay, I will nonetheless begin so that we don't lose time. Have patience. This will be almost no improvisation. I would like to begin with a case I already mentioned here, but I would like to elaborate it more in detail. You told me you will not be here because I wanted to make fun of you, but now you are here, I cannot. My God. You will still make fun of me. <laughs> no. Let me nonetheless begin with the three minutes in honoring Costa's political improvisation when some leftists attack me. You know, there is some stupid message on the net like uh, Zizek supports the social democratic turn of Syriza or whatever. You know what they, again, you know what they don't see that first they attack me for supporting bourgeoisie, they attack me for the term patriotic bourgeoisie. But they didn't get the irony, and the joke is that they pretend to be Maoists. You know that this is an old Maoist term. When Mao took over, he said, we must unconditionally get on our side the patriotic bourgeoisie. And even, did you see, ah, if you want to do a cultural analysis, you should see, you know, in China, every 10 years, they shoot a movie. Every, I mean, at every 10 years anniversary, decade of uh, 49 of the communist takeover, they shoot a movie, a history of how communist takeover, no, uh, uh, civil war in China, uh, revolution, whatever you call it. And then the joke is that you should see the last one, how the last one from 2009, how obviously they got, learned their lesson from Hollywood. They got all the big stars that we even in the West know for these small roles, you know. Like when a progressive bourgeois journalist interviews Mao, he's Jackie Chan, of course, you know. <laughs> and then Mao answers, blah, blah, he's immediately seduced. Then you know that beautiful young actress, there are two beauties there, Gong Li, now the older one, and Zhang Ziyi, the young one. She, at the end, after communist takeover, she's seen with a couple of women debating with Mao what should be the new communist flag. And it's almost eroticized, like she makes a proposal and then Mao looks at her with obvious desire. Yes, I support the young comrade, this is a good proposal, and so on. But the reason I'm saying this is that there is a wonderful comical scene, for me comical, where obviously, you know, they want to instrumentalize the past to justify the present, of course. The present is what? The rule of capital, capitalism. So it's a wonderful scene. I mean, to take too much time for me to show it to you. Uh, 
it's Mao after, after Red Army takes over Beijing. Mao walks along a street with a couple of guards and sees a tobacco store, no, and asks his guard, can you jump in, let's go in, I want to buy my favorite cigarettes, no? And then the guard tells him, sorry, Comrade Mao, this chain is owned by a rich capitalist and he escaped, it doesn't work. And then Mao says, are you trying to tell me that now I cannot even buy in Beijing my favorite cigarettes? And then Mao says, the Deng Xiaoping thought. Listen, now we communists took over, but even if it takes decades, at some point we will have to bring up back capitalists, you know, like Mao already knew everything in advance. I like that, you know. So what I'm saying is that this stupid accusation, social democracy turn and so on, they really don't know how a process of change starts. I mean, you never begin with a big revolution. You begin with a small step, with a demand which may appear normal, and then you get caught into the process. You know, like, we want this, but then you discover if you really want this, we have also to change that, and so on and so on. In concrete Greek situation, that's the point, to, to, to demand small, modest things, like a clean, efficient state apparatus, is a revolutionary thing to do. And involves, if you really want to realize it, much more radical measures. So I think that it's a very comfortable position to be radical and claim we want to wait for the pure, uh, pure position when an avant-garde party will take over. I claim this is the most comfortable position which makes it sure that absolutely nothing will happen. Or to be extremely brutal. I wonder if you agree, Kostas. The, the types who... Uh, those idiots who approach Syriza for being too revisionist know we need clear avant-garde organization. Let's say the two of us, if we were to be together heading some secret bourgeois fascist committee, which has certain money at its disposal of whom to bribe among the leftists to make it sure that nothing will happen, I would have immediately financed those pseudo-radical leftists. You know, which is why, I don't know if you know the situation in the United States, that new revolution... And arrest Badiou for what he says. Sorry? And arrest Badiou. No, you are not evil enough. That's why I suspect your social democracy. <laughs> I want to terrorize him so that you know, you arrest his son, blah, blah, so then I want uh, Alain to come voluntarily up and confess, you know. You just exert a little bit of pressure, like, you know, ah, ah, you have a son, really, that's interesting, you know. You know, when a policeman tells you this, it can be much worse than if a policeman just beats you directly, you know, just, oh, you have a nice daughter or something like that. You confess everything, you know. Okay, sorry, let me go on, seriously. You know. uh, in his, uh, no, because again, what I worry is that I agree here with you. Are we aware what a unique thing happened in Greece? There were protests all around Europe. Nowhere else was it possible from this uh, wild protest, okay, not wild, wild simply in the sense of a little bit chaotic and so on, to transform there into a minimally organized party. And it has a unique chance. And to ruin this on, a, on account of some orthodoxy of this is not radical communist revolution is madness, but let, let me now really begin. I would like to begin with theology. And more and more, I'm interested in theology. Like, I don't know if I already uh, talked about this the last time I was here, but, for example, 
recently I found in Kierkegaard an incredible passage where he mocks, but is obviously fascinated, by some medieval theologist who claims that, uh, that he can prove Okay, the situation is this one. I will not go into who says that. The idea is that for God to truly exist, intelligent, sophisticated uh, uh, theologists have to prove his existence, you know, so that, as it were, God is trembling there, oh my God, what if they prove that I don't exist? Like, will I disappear or whatever? So, and then uh, Kierkegaard has a wonderful... Metaphor, he says, God is here like a constitutional monarch, trembling like, will, will the assembly uh, 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 agree to his powers as a, as a constitutional monarch or whatever? So I like this idea, the supreme power, trembling like, no, do I really exist, doubting if he exists at all? This would be what I call materialist theology, but let me go into much more perverse waters. In his... Uh, Summa Theologica, Thomas Aquinas draw the conclusion that the blessed in the kingdom of heaven up there will see the punishments of the damned in order that their bliss be more delightful for them. And uh, St. John Bosco, another theologist, draw the same conclusion but in the opposite direction. The damned in hell will also be able to see the joy of those in heaven, which will add to their suffering. Here are their well worth reading. Aquinas's two formulations of this claim. They are both from Summa Theologica, from third part, question 94, if you want references. First quote, nothing should be denied the blessed that belongs to the perfection of their beatitude. Wherefore, in order that the happiness of the saints may be more delightful to them and that they may render more copious thanks to God for it, they are allowed to see perfectly the sufferings of the damned. Or second passage, that the saints may enjoy the beatitude more truly and give more abundant thanks for it to God, a perfect sight of the punishment of the damned is granted to them." End of quote. Aquinas, of course, is well aware of possible obscene implications of this. I mean, because basically the good souls in heaven find pleasure in observing the terrible suffering of other souls, which is not exactly a Christian feeling of mercy. But he proceeds in two lines here, Aquinas. First, he begins by the thesis that in heaven, the blessed will enjoy full, illumi full illumination of their minds. And knowledge is also a blessing and perfection, which should not be denied to the saints. So if the saints in heaven were to be ignorant of the damned, this would be a denial of the blessing of knowledge. Consequently, the saints in heaven will possess a greater knowledge including a greater knowledge of hell, even seeing it. It's tricky, but maybe it works. But next problem. Good Christians should feel pity when they see suffering. Will the blessed in heaven also feel pity for the torments of the damned? Aquinas, no, they will not feel pity. 
is grounded in a very tricky hair-splitting argumentation. Here is another quote. Seeing the punishment of the wicked, the righteous ones have no pity. Whoever pities another shares somewhat in his unhappiness, but the blessed cannot share in anyone's unhappiness. Therefore, they do not pity the afflictions of the damned. That's then there is the second line of argumentation. Uh, Aquinas tries to refute the notion that the blessed in heaven gain joy from the punishment of the damned in a direct obscene, direct obscene way. He introduces here a distinction between two modes of enjoying a thing. Again, the last quote from Aquinas. A thing may be a matter of rejoicing in two ways. First, directly, when one rejoices a thing in a thing as such, and thus the saints will not rejoice in the punishment of the wicked. Second, indirectly, by reason of something annexed to it. And it is in this way that the saints will rejoice in the punishment of the wicked. By considering therein the order of divine justice and their own deliverance, which will fill them with joy. And thus the divine justice and their own deliverance will be the direct cause of the joy of the blessed, while the punishment of the damned will cause it indirectly." End of quote. The problem of this explanation is, of course, that the relationship between the two levels uh, is effectively turned around. Enjoying divine justice effectively functions as a rationalization, the moral cover-up for sadistically enjoying the neighbor's eternal suffering. You see my point. Uh, uh, Aquinas says, okay, you don't enjoy suffering as such, but you see in it the majesty of divine justice. And that's what really fills you with pleasure. But there is always a Freudian suspicion that what, 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 what if it is the other way around, you know? What, that if, if you pretend that you just think, maybe even sincerely, I just admire the divine justice, but, but really is the sadistic pleasure at the other's suffering. Again, what makes Aquinas' formulation suspicious is the surplus enjoyment it introduces, as if the simple pleasure of living in the bliss of heaven is not enough and has to be supplemented by an additional surplus enjoyment of being allowed to take a look at another's suffering. Only in this way, the blessed souls, as Aquinas wrote, I repeat it, may enjoy their beatitude more truly. So again, the idea is that, you see, it's the idea is that it's a suspicion, which is wonderfully true, that heaven may be a little bit boring, you know, and to spice it up, you know, like, like you need a little bit of hell. Like, we can clearly imagine here a scene in heaven. Some blessed souls start to complain that the nectar they were served was not as tasty as the last time, <laughs> that the blissful life up there is rather boring after all. And then an angel serving them would snap back. You don't like it here? Ah, take a look at how life is down there at the other end, and maybe you will see how lucky you are up here. So there is always... Uh, this type of suspicion, but my favorite dream here, a uh, scene, would have been 
to imagine the exact opposite of John Bosco's vision. And I think this is the libidinal truth of all of it. The true scene which underlines all this variation is imagine life in hell as what it really is, I claim. Intense, pleasurable life, orgies and so on, whatever you want. Only the problem is that you do this secretly back in hell, no? And then from time to time, uh, when the devil's administrators of hell learn that the blessed soul from heaven will control them, will be allowed to look at them, they briefly, they, they collect, uh, gather the demon souls and tell them, listen guys, we have fun here, but those up shouldn't know it. So can you for half an hour pretend that you suffer, do those gestures to satisfy them up and then the fun goes on and so on, you know. That's the truth of it, I think. But again, what we find here is, and that's the, that's the whole logic of envy, of object A, and so on, that happiness doesn't function without this excess of seeing the other suffer. And I claim that most of us, if we bring this tension to extreme and pose a dilemma, okay, what would you prefer? To have just your happiness without knowing of the suffering of the others, or just to see the other suffering, but you deprived of your happiness. I claim that almost all of us would effectively choose the second option. It's more satisfying to see the other suffering than your own happiness. Uh, next paradox, by way of which I will approach superego. Uh, I heard that now they are reunited, Monty Python, and that that performance was sold out in like 40 seconds and so on. Okay. To celebrate then, I would like to describe to you very briefly my favorite scene from Monty Python's Meaning of Life. You know that uh, episode where they see the sexual education in future, no? where like, teacher, the teacher is uh, addressing the class and asking, this is always my favorite scene, asking the, uh, asking the pupils, okay, you stand up three ways to arouse vagina. And the guy starts to stutter, oh, oh, and then the teacher tells him, ah, you didn't practice this yesterday evening. What were you doing instead of preparing? Stupidities like this, but, but I want to begin with the, just with the very beginning of this episode. It shows pupils in a class awaiting for the teacher to arrive. They are bored, sitting at their benches, yawning, sta staring in the air, then, one of them, of the pupils, standing close to the door, shouts, the teacher is coming. And then the pupils explode into wild activity, you know, shouting, throwing uh, papers around, and shaking their tables, and so on. All the stuff pupils in a class are supposed to do when the teacher is absent, you know. This is the nice subversion of the standard scene that we imagine. Pupils are wild in a class, then the teacher enters, they have to calm down. No, this is the libidinal truth. Without the presence of the teacher's gaze, the pupils are just bordered. They don't know what to do. And when they learn that the, the teacher is approaching, they, they stage the protest. You know where I've witnessed something of this? This may be a very, uh, a very uh, uh, problematic political point for you, but I think it's a wonderful story. Uh, a friend, a Slovene journalist, told me that one. No, I didn't mention it two days ago. I'm getting confused. In uh, Palestine, uh, what is south of Jerusalem? Bethlehem, no? Okay. Uh, 
this was in a time when it was much less tension than now. Those Clinton years where it looked as if maybe there will be peace. And uh, in, in north of Bethlehem, on the main road from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, there is a monument to some Israeli, I don't know, historical heroine, whatever. The point is, although this was Palestinian territory controlled by PLO, that monument was, or I don't know what, archaeological site, was guarded by Israeli soldiers. And there were daily demonstrations, then Palestinian youth throwing stones at Israeli soldiers. And it was just a daily ritual. Okay, so my friend, a Slovene journalist, who was very much on Palestinian side, of course, uh, was told by a Palestinian, if you want to see what truly goes on, come there one hour earlier. He came there at 10, at 11, and he saw, you can imagine what, Palestinian young people and Israeli soldiers talking, uh, <laughs> exchanging cigarettes, and so on. And then somebody shouted, CNN is coming. And he said, okay, sorry, we stepped back. They started to throw some stones. Then the guy shouted half an hour later, CNN is leaving. <laughs> then they said, okay, we see you tomorrow again. Thanks. I mean, it was a wonderful ritual, I think, you know. And the sad thing is that today, that's the true tension when, unfortunately, these rituals no longer go on. So what, this, what such scenes make clear is that, now I'm returning to the scene from uh, Monty Python, that the transgressive commotion that annoys the teacher is effectively directed at him. It is not spontaneous amusement, but something performed for the teacher. Uh, you know where, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but I really want to go through this perverse logic which sustains superego. A movie that I maybe mentioned not two days ago, but a year ago when I was here. I really like it more and more. I saw it again with my son. It's a shitty movie, of course, the only movies that I like. Did you see Project X? No, it was a modest hit uh, a year and a half ago. It's a story which is basically based on a real event. It happened also around a year and a half, two years ago in Belgium, very mysterious, a local girl in some shitty small city there, probably if I refer to what I think, wasn't I saying this here two days ago, you know, probably the daughter of one of those farmers who were signaling the Germans, you know, with whatever, with laundry out there, uh, uh, just put on her website that she wants to have a party if some of her friends want to join it. And I'm not dreaming. This was, I saw it on TV report. This was reported in all media. You know what happened the same evening? 50 to 60,000 people came. The whole city was under siege. And something similar happens here, Project X. A couple of nerds want to organize a party to raise their status in their high school. And then, of course, thousands of people arrive, and it's a sacred event, a modern sacred event, a kind of a sacred orgy. But something else I want to emphasize here. Uh, before the evening, they do this in the private house of one of the boys, and his fa because his father goes for a weekend trip with mother. And father tells him, listen, strictly, Maximum five friends, don't touch my car, everything should happen in the living room, don't enter other rooms. Of course then, there are 10,000 people there, the car is burned, five houses are burned, police intervenes. Now comes the crucial thing. Then, next day, father comes home, and something wonderful happens. Father says to the son, 
listen, you did a horrible thing, you will have to work years repaying the debt. But I must tell you something, you did it. I didn't think you have the guts to do it. You know, and I think that this is how authentic paternal authority, even traditional one, works. It, it pretends to prohibit it, but it allows you a niche, you know, like it's a call, do it, violate it. And I think, uh, and I think, uh, I even then gathered in one of my texts some historical examples of this. Like I read in a book about Catherine the Great, the Russian Empress, you know, how uh, once her servant informed her that her other servants are stealing liquors and expensive candy. And she says, of course, I know it. But I just pretend not to know, notice it. I know it. That's how I keep them at their place, you know. This is, I think, a nice, I don't have time to develop it fully now, but this is, in what sense, Lacan, in his critique of Hegel, is right to claim that in the dialectic of master and servant, the pleasure is on the side of the servant. That Hegel is wrong who thinks the servant just works, the master uh, enjoys. No, the master's enjoyment is full of anxiety. You know, the master all the time worries and looks at the slave like, did I convince the slave about my dignity? And the only enjoyment are those niches where the slave, like, uh, where the slave thinks he can enjoy out of the master's gaze. But the whole point of this enjoyment is that you annoy, you think you annoy the master, you think you treat the master, and so on and so on. And uh, according to some theologists, maybe I'm going too far here, but I read it in some books. This is how they interpret the mysterious for exact formulation in Ten Commandments. You know, don't celebrate other gods. But as I was told by my Israeli friends, it's not just this. The commandment says, don't celebrate other gods in my presence. This is crucial, you know. It's as if, what do you do back in your home? It's your business. Just not publicly in my presence. And again, I think that... Uh, this is how Lacan, I don't have it here, in a wonderful passage, claims that it's absolutely crucial for the traditional master's gaze to leave a space, a secret niche, where his message to the servant is, I don't see, and I don't want to know, I don't want to see what you are doing there. And I claim, among other things, that, that in communism, they... they mastered perfectly this art. This unseen pleasure were political jokes, no? And I think that up to a point, it's not as direct as that, but it's an interesting paranoia that there were rumors, persistent rumors in Soviet Union, in my country, ex-Yugoslavia, that there is an ultra-secret department of the secret police where they fabricate this joke to keep the population happy, you know? Like, better they're telling the jokes against us and I must say, some of these jokes are not mega funny, but they do have spirit. I almost prefer, I think that, and I don't mean it this time as a joke, but seriously, I think that maybe the greatest cultural fiasco loss of the fall of communism was 
the disappearance of these intelligent political jokes. And it's incredibly, I don't know if I already told you this one, how well they elaborated. You have even different variations, for example, maybe you know this one, I'm sorry. Uh, a Yugoslav politician who was supposed to be stupid, he visits Germany, and the train passes, you know, the city close to Frankfurt, Baden-Baden. No? And there are even two versions. One is, he asked, what for a city is this, his guide? The German guide says Baden-Baden. You know what the Yugoslav politician answers? I'm not an idiot, you don't have to tell me two times. You know? <laughs> but there is even a better version. I learned it recently, that uh, the, the Yugoslav politician asks a German politician, which city are you coming from? He says Baden-Baden. So the Yugoslav idiot thought that, he, that for the Germans you have to tell it two times, and then when the other guy asks him, from which city you are coming, he says Belgrade, Belgrade. You know, like, as if, okay, in German you tell it twice. I mean, there were, there were so, it was such an art, and I think, again, that the relationship was very ambiguous. Of course, you were arrested for telling them. But it was clearly an imminent transgression. The message was, you know, you were arrested if you were, to quote the Bible, the Old Testament, if you were telling jokes in front, in the face of Jehovah or Stalin or whoever, no? If you did it, this, which is why, uh, uh, which, okay, of course you have then these cheap jokes which react to this, like the idea is that when Honecker is German, met Willy Brandt, or was it Schmidt? I think it was still Brandt, doesn't matter. That Brandt, Willy Brandt told him, oh, I connect, I, what are you, what is your hobby? No, no, Honecker asked Brandt, what is your hobby? Willy Brandt says, I collect jokes about me. And you know what Honecker answers? I collect people in my prison who are telling jokes about me, <laughs> so on, you know. But, but nonetheless, again, it's absolutely crucial and this was, I think, the sublime moment. When a regime falls apart, what was an inherent transgression, but a transgression which nonetheless, you know, it remained a transgression, although it was part of the system. In utter despair, I remember in Yugoslavia, somewhere from 85, 86 on, in utter, because they saw the writing on the wall, the sign, our rule is over. So to regain or retain at least popularity, they mobilized this transgression. And you had an incredible thing. You had politicians, especially from Croatia, interesting, who were publicly reporting, telling jokes about themselves. Like, I couldn't believe it. Once a Croat politician, forgot his name, what is Mika Špiljak or who, visited Rome and then came back and at a press conference to journalists, you know, journalists expected the usual boring, you know, I met the Italian representatives and we concluded uh, further friendship between our nations, all the bullshit. No, he started by telling the whole series of jokes, very stupid one, but I like them, of course, making fun of his stupidity, you know, because you know that Sistine Chapel, Chapel, it's also capelle, chapel like capella. And you know, in, in Italy and Austria, capella means also, you find this, if you know classical music, like Dres, uh, Leipziger Stadtskapelle. Capelle means a small orchestra, no? And okay, then, uh, for example, he said there was a mess in Italy. First, they told me to go and uh, to go 
to see uh, 16 Chapel. But I called all the cafeteria, nowhere was playing the 16 Chapel, no? <laughs> Then he said, they told me to visit marriage of Figaro. I called all the churches, Figaro was nowhere getting married, and so on. You're like, but you know, the obscenity was that the guy himself, you know, it was a very desperate strategy where you directly bring out the hidden underside, no? It was the same, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, but you are too young even to hear them, you know, spreading them. For example, the nicest point of this obscenity was in Slovenia in the last years of communism when, you know, in the 70s already, there was this miracle, even now it still goes on, Medjugorje, Virgin Mary appearing. It was a mega miracle. For some years it was second largest uh, pilgrimage site after Lourdes, no? Okay. Their Virgin Mary, the usual bullshit, no? And the, uh, the Bosnian communists, this was still communist era, were simply stupid with no business sense, you know. They said, no, we don't want to support, and they made the most stupid thing you can imagine. Because Italian travel agencies took over and earned about at least two, three billion dollars. It was plain stupidity. My Slovene communists were already totally business-oriented, and they were furious at Bosnians, like, my God, the country is in a crisis, do business. So then, I'm sorry if you know the story, then the miracle happened. Uh, close to Ljubljana, between Ljubljana and Ljubljana airport, Ljubljana capital of Slovenia, at some crossing there was also a small statue of Mary, and This statue started to do what they are paid to do, supposed to do. No, you know, moving a little bit, some uh, tears of blood, and so on. And the communists jumped of joy. My God, we will teach the Bosnians how you do it. They immediately hired architects the plan, built a big hotel, theological seminary, all was done. But then a catastrophe happened. The local priest said, no, this is superstition, this is not a miracle. <laughs> And then I have it at home. Then a miracle happened. In the official weekly, the most official of the Communist Party, this priest was attacked for non-patriotic behavior. <laughs> like, wait a minute, he's supposed to support our economy, to help country, it's a miracle. What with this atheist bullshit there and so on, you know? This is for me the moment of miracle. When you get this, uh, how should I put this discursive paradox, when One discourse still remains what it is, but starts to imitate, how should I put it, you know, like wants to accommodate to the, another discourse, and then you get these ridiculous scenes of communists demanding to, and so on. Um, but if you think that this is an exception, Chinese today are doing the same. You know, they have a polemic who will be uh, uh, about, uh, you have Dalai Lama and Panchen Lama, no? Panchen Lama is crucial because uh, uh, when this Dalai Lama dies, who will be the new one? And the vote of the other Lama is crucial. So there are now two Panchen Lamas. One, the Dalai Lama recognizes and another one in China. They claim that this is the true reincarnation. And this Chinese Panchen Lama, what a miracle, was was born, of course, in a high nomenclatura communist family and so on, no? Okay, so, you know, I couldn't stop laughing. A Chinese friend gave me the official Chinese text, translated it to me. You know, what's their accusation of Dalai Lama? Is that, no, they faked it. Their Dalai Lama, the communist one, 
there were the real miracles. And then they enumerate them, you know, like immediately after falling out of her mother's womb, he already recited Buddha and so on, whatever. <laughs> but I like it. So, and, I, and now my favorite story, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, uh, happened of this inconsistency of discourses in in Slovenia, I'm sorry if you know the story, uh, late 80s when communists were totally desperate knowing that they're losing power, radio student and independent radio station as uh, invited for an interview an old communist cadre, real, you know, the real old cadre. And this guy was desperate. He only was able to speak his stupid official jargon. But at the same time, he desperately tried to please the young people. He knows he must appear friendly to them. So they were merciless. I was totally on the side of this old communist because he was desperate. And they asked him, what about sexuality? Do you know this directly? And he desperately tried to please the young people, but the only language he was able to speak was the communist jargon. So he was selling something like... Uh, 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 touching women between their legs is a great instigation for my constructing socialism and so on, you know? <laughs> Total obscenities like this, you know? Like, the only language he was able... But I think these are the most beautiful moments. These are the moments of the political sublime. So let me go on. The same obscenity holds the general rule, which I already mentioned here, but I want to develop it now a little bit more systematically, is that our most intense forms of enjoyment are not spontaneous outbursts, but something learned by imitation, an acquired taste. My first example. Recall your first experience of smoking or drinking a hard liquor. As a rule, admit it, it was an unpleasant experience. You know, like you are with maybe an older friend who tells you, do you know what adults are doing? You know, they drink this and okay, he offers you whiskey. Your first reaction, admit it, is that, like it's bitter and so on. And then, and cigarette is the same. Like an older colleague offers a young boy a cigarette and he starts to smoke and said, but this is horrible. Then you acquire it. It's not spontaneous. Spontaneous is to drink stupid fruit juices or, or milk or whatever. <laughs> uh, gradually, you learn to enjoy it. I claim it's even something of the same order in Coke. I remember my first, and then I'm systematically asking my friends, do you remember your first experience with Coke, Coca-Cola? And all of me admitted it. They were told, especially. Sorry? Sorry? No, the point is that the first experience is it's something bitter, weird, and so on. But you drink it because you learn, at least in provincial countries or communists, you know, that's the American drink, and so on. And then you learn to enjoy it. Uh, 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 what is directly, and I. To go to the end, I claim that it's the same with sex. What is directly pleasurable is just some stupid rhythmically squeezing yourself, maybe masturbation and so on. But to enjoy a full act of copulation, more than a simple good masturbation, is not natural, I claim. It's, you have to learn it. And again, as I already mentioned, the last time I think a similar lesson can be learned from swearing. It may appear that when in the middle of a polite conversation, you get really mad, you cannot hold back anymore, 
your frustration and you explode like fuck it, I have enough of it and so on. But I claim it's, it's not so. As I already mentioned it here, I have a ritual with some of my good friends. After we met, we meet, we engage for the first five minutes in ritualized sessions of rough, tasteless swearing and offending each other, like screw your mother up her ass, whatever you want. <laughs> then, after some five, ten minutes, we get tired. We acknowledge with a brief nod that this boring ritual is over and okay, the duty is over, now we can talk kind people that we are and so on and so on. And I think this is a rule that transgressions are not spontaneous. And that's maybe in the background of my polemic, polemic, friendly exchange with that uh, uh, pussy Nadezhda Tolokonikova. No? I, uh, I take her very seriously. She is heroic. But I claim she underestimates her own heroism. In the sense that, you know, I violently disagree with her famous line, which is now quoted, we are children of Dionysus, and so on, or what. You know, I think it's a catastrophic mistake to read the Pussy Riot Act as, you know, we have a stiff hierarchic structure, we need a fresh air of outbursts of spontaneity, and so on, and so on. No, the point is not to reestablish the balance. The point is not that Putin stands for hierarchic order. The point is that hierarchic order is a bad hierarchic order, you know. The point is how to change that order. It's not just that balance between... Uh, and I claim that, that she is not aware of what Pussy Riot are really doing. They're not simply bringing in fresh air of provocation, carnival into hierarchic structure, no. Their message is, you, Putin, who pretend to be a dignified ruler, you are a clown, you are an obscenity. Because they specifically criticized the link between church and uh, power in Russia. Like, remember what they shouted during that uh, provocation in, I don't know which church, it was directed at the, uh, at the uh, how is it called, whatever, the boss of the... What? Patriarch, yes. Shouting, Patriarch, Alexei, or what? Believe more in God, believe less in Putin, and so on, and so on. So I think you totally miss the point if you look at it as a simple, fresh air of provocation. No, the thesis is that they, in the power, are the provocation. They are the carnival. They are the, they are the uh, obscenity. But let me go on. Now, we should apply my next point, this lesson, also to forms of collective violence, like gang rapes and killings. One of the terrifying effects of the fact that today we have different levels of social life, like we can have in the same country ultra-modern industry and old patriarchal forms of family, is the rise of the violence against women. Not just random violence, but systematic violence, violence specific to a certain social context, violence which follows a pattern. Even in India, I claim, that would be my first example. Remember about a year ago or even less, there was the great outcry when five guys in a bus uh, raped a girl. I was opposed to that, outbur uh, to that uh, public outrage. Don't misunderstand me, not because I think uh, the girl deserved it, but but Arundhati Roy, with whom I fully sympathize, the Indian writer, made it clear that why such a great outcry about that? Simply because the guys were from the lower caste, poor. If you want to see uh, violence against women, 
she wrote, my God, go to a whorehouse in, 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 in Mumbai, Bombay, and you will see hundreds times more terrible horrors. Do you know that there is a systematic uh, link uh, between Mumbai prostitution rings and poor families in the north of India or in Nepal? They are selling, uh, poor farmers there in total despair are selling girls from five years on old to be directly used, either used in, uh, in, in, used in bordelos or sold to individuals. Like, everyone knows about it. And uh, where is the outcry when five poor guys uh, do that? So I think, but another point I want to emphasize, which is crucial for me. For example, I want now to go more in detail into an example that I already mentioned maybe here a year ago. The serial killings of women in Ciudad Juarez, at the border of Texas. The point is that these are not just private pathologies, but a ritualized activity, part of the subculture of local gangs. Because first, I mean, there is, uh, by Samuel Text, a book, I forgot the author, published called Feminicide or what, which gives a pretty terrifying detailed description of it. Uh, the point is that Ciudad Juarez is the capital of this fast assembling industry, you know. Parts, uh, uh, parts uh, manufacture, I don't know where, in some Chinese gulag or whatever, no. They just put them together there and up. So they need a lot of not heavily educated workforce, so there are many single women there employed. For them it's nonetheless a chance. They are not well paid, but at least they earn their living there autonomous, free, young women. And this, of course, is a provocation for male chauvinist logic. So as if to punish them for their independence, it happens serially, like a couple of dozens cases per year, at least, and it's pretty, even for my bad taste, pretty disgusting. Usually it's 40 to 50 people who do it. First it's the gang rape, then the slow cutting, killing. Like first with scissors, they cut off her bread. It's this. So, but why, why am I mentioning this? Because when they police investigate, ah, the first irony. Basically, it's a matter of common knowledge. Everybody knows who are these gangs. Not one person was arrested for these crimes. And we are talking about dozens of women every year. The only one not arrested but killed was a mother who inquired too much into what happened <laughs> to her daughter. Uh, the, the important thing, again, is that if the police investigates it, it what, that's crucial, it systematically overlooks, ignores what? Not the brutality of the crime, but it's, let's call it, social, symbolic, ritualized dimension. They desperately try to make it a case of individual pathology. Oh, that crazy guy, that crazy drunken guy did it, whatever. What is censored is the collective ritualized character. The, you, you see the link with the stupid jokes that I was telling before? This is not uh, uh, young people getting drunk and doing a horrible rape or whatever, like in their spontaneous violence. No, it's a strictly ritualized thing. They follow a ritual. It's a collective act, symbolic performance. The same thing, now you will say, haha, it's easy for me to make fun of uh, Mexicans. What about more civilized north? Canada, close to Vancouver, well, you have 
something similar going on. Although Canadians like to boast that they are, you know, uh, they are the part of civilized Europe in America, kind of a social democratic paradise. No, uh, close to Vancouver, there are some uh, Native American, whatever, I prefer to call them Indian, Indian, uh, Indian reservations. And there also, it's practically ritualized, young people, young white people kidnap a girl from a reservation, torture her and drop her, kill her, rape her, of course, and drop her dead just inside the reservation. And when the police investigates it, they systematically try to direct investigation into, oh, it was probably a dissolute family, father, mother is a whore, father is a drug addict, whatever, you know. What they neglect, it's not, again, the brutality of the crime but the social symbolic dimension of it. They try to make it just a kind of a natural decadence, you know, crazy poor families, okay, explosion of violence, but the point is, it's not this, it's a collective act. Again, what is repressed for the public gaze is not the cruel brutality of the act, but precisely its cultural, ritualistic character of a symbolic custom. It's absolutely crucial to insist on this point. These violent acts, they are part of our culture. They are the dark side of our culture. They are symbolic rituals. They are not just some brutality exploding. The same perverted social ritual logic is at work in the cases, of course, my eternal example of pedophilia, which shatters the Catholic Church. When the church representatives insist that these cases deplorable as they are, are church's internal problem, and they display great reluctance to collaborate with police. They are in a way right. The pedophilia of Catholic priests is not something that concerns merely the persons who, because of accidental reasons of private history, happen to be pedophiliacs. It is a phenomenon which concerns Catholic church as such. You know what I'm trying to say? In the same way that part of the adult culture, precisely as a symbolic structure in Ciudad Juarez, are these obscure rituals of uh, torturing, raping, killing the poor girls, in exactly the same way, it's crucial to insist that pedophilia, it's not just because, okay, as with every commun community, of course, some people are pedophiliacs and so on. No, it's the obscene underground part of the church's identity. Now you will tell me, how do you know it? Well, it's absolutely clear, if nothing else, from the way the church reacts to it, absolutely protecting them, like there were numerous scandals in Slovenia, where till recently, the church was absolutely, like there were a couple of cases where parents, when they learned that a local priest is systematically raping their small boy, they went to the bishop, to a higher authority. And the first thing that the bishop told them is that they should absolutely talk to no one about it. That if they did, it, they commit a mortal sin. And then they, they simply transferred the priest to another part of Slovenia, where of course he went on, uh, uh, he went on doing on the same thing. What I'm claiming is that this is where, for me, today, critique of ideology begins. To be aware how what may appear as a criminal deviation or whatever 
how these obscene phenomena are part of symbolic identity of our institutions. And I've written a lot about it uh, at different levels. For example, you cannot imagine a traditional conservative American uh, university without all those uh, all those uh, fraternities, sororities, with all their obscene rituals, and so on and so on. I even read once an amusing text after, after Abu Ghraib, that how what they were doing there to Iraqis is basically the same rituals that they do to new students to, uh, in the rituals of their uh, uh, admission and so on and so on. Uh, uh, or with Ku Klux Klan and so on. Uh, 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 the, another thing I want to mention here, and this is really amusing for me at least, is how the same attitude emerges in, and I like them, in the domain of self-help guides. There also, we have the official self-help guides, you know, like how to win new friends, how to, all the official stuff. But do you know, I have some of them, that there is a whole series, there are some publishers doing them of, let's say, the, uh, the, uh, the obscene guides with which imitate the form of these self-help guides, but in a slightly more obscene, like cheaters always prosper, advanced backstabbing and mudslinging techniques, revenge tactics, spy on your spouse, and so on. I have a couple of them, and they are very well written. It's, for example, how to ruin someone, your best friend, maybe, with, with rumors without getting caught, and so on. My favorite one is, of course, and I have it, how to disappear completely. <laughs> I mean, it gives a detailed of how you should prepare your disappearance. For example, first, how you get, uh, in the United States, the crucial is to get a social security number, no? How to get this, how to go on then, and so on. And it's, it's a wonderful book to read. I mean, it's, it works. So, uh, uh, now let me go to a step further here. This inherent inconsistency of our ideological or even legal order is not limited just to this obscene phenomena. I think that there is a kind of necessary inconsistency in our legal structures Legal, in our legal order itself. Let me quote an example which I mentioned a couple of times in my books uh, of contemporary China. How do official Chinese communist theorists react when confronted with obvious contradictions? Like a communist party which still legitimizes itself in Marxist terms but renounces Marxism basic premise, the workers' self-organization. I think my experience was, and of course, tasteless guy as I am, whenever I'm in China, I ask this, especially when I'm dealing with official philosophers, I ask them these questions. And I notice how they mobilize all the resources of traditional Chinese politeness, you know. Basically, quite a great number of them, I was surprised, look around and like, you know, like, why it's not polite to ask this question, you know? It's as if it's some uh, impolite secret that you shouldn't mention uh, publicly. Uh, and uh, 
so again, how, why politeness? Because clearly, when you, okay, they try to give you some stupid answers. Like one answer, it was so stupid that I almost appreciate it was, and I told them, you pretend to be a communist country, and, uh, and uh, but you strictly prohibit trade unions, self worker self-organization, and you support capitalism now. You know, one guy answered me in the following way. I loved it. He said, you are confusing, uh, you are confusing leftism with Marxism as science. Leftism talks about working class, but Marxism is a science of social development. And Marxism as a science of social development tells us that at the present stage, the best instrument to develop China is capitalism. So as a, okay, this stupidity they tell you. But, but uh, more, in a more interesting, then there is a quite honest opposite attempt. They claim just for historical reason we keep the term communism, we are Confucians. They quote you that. They draw attention to the fact that even in their problematic statements, the goal is no longer called communism but harmonious society or whatever. But uh, the typical answer, nonetheless, is again politeness. They let you know that even openly, one guy <laughs> told me privately, of course it's true what you are saying. But when you are visiting a friendly country, it's not polite to draw attention to such inconsistencies, you know. Like, you should politely ignore them. We should politely ignore them. Then I consciously played an idiot and asked them, but why don't you formalize this? Why don't you simply say publicly, like, it's prohibited to ask in what sense we are a communist country or whatever, no? And then what I wanted to, and I did achieve it basically, is to force them, of course, to come as close as possible to this statement that uh, it's not only that something is prohibited, but prohibition itself is prohibited. So you know what I mean? Like, it's not only that it's prohibited to ask, but in what sense China is communist. But even, you cannot even like directly formulate this prohibition. When you ask in China, is this still a communist country, in what sense? No one will answer you, sorry, it's prohibited to ask this question, you know. We, we have prohibitions which are themselves prohibited. And they are just what happens here? Uh, and I say this with all respect, because this, what I will say now, refers to what I still see as a potential emancipatory dimension of Islam. And if some of you know it better, you can correct me. But the way I read from some French leftist, Islamic French, is the following. Don't you have a certain ritual? Okay, I'll put it like this. Uh, the origin of mythic of Arab Muslim is supposed to be Hagar, that slave girl with whom Abraham had a, a son. And then the son became the original, where for Western racism, the bad guy. But nonetheless, God intervened and saved. And wasn't there a famous scene? Isn't this part of the ritual when you go to, to Hajj or how it you call to the pilgrimage? 
that you have to run between two rocks or some weird ritual like that. And it's clear that this ritual is a mythic repetition of Hagar wandering in desert and so on. The point is what? The point is that this story is never directly mentioned in Koran. It's just enacted, you know, it's something has to remain unmentioned. So it's not prohibited. It's even prohibited to say that it's prohibited. But it's nonetheless operative. It's kind of a necessary unmentioned implicit support and you enact it in a ritual. I found nothing problematic here. Okay, but back to, so back to China. I often quote this a title in one report in when I was in Japan, the Japan Times, there was a wonderful article called Even What's Secret is a Secret in China. Namely, someone, uh, a, a, a local dissident was informing media about some ecological local catastrophes and so on, and he was arrested. And then his lawyer asked, why is he arrested? Uh, which laws did he break? Like what, no? The answer was, it's a state secret. <laughs> Namely, not what he disclosed, but even the laws that he violated were not, were not, to, be, were not to be mentioned. Uh, now I come, and now I come slowly to the topic of the superego. Have a little bit of patience, because I've chosen as my big example something very weird. Uh, the first Slovene post-communist film. Post-communist in the, it's from one of the first, it's from 1957. It's a sentimental love melodrama. It was, no, the first part was shot even in 53. It was, as it were, the, the, the liberal opening. Because till that point, all Slovene films were either critique of previous society or celebrating partisans, you know. This was the first film Basically, the message to young people was, you have the right to, you, you can have some fun. Everything is not ideology. You are allowed your jokes and so on and so on. It was like symbolic point of opening. Uh, so the film I'm talking about, it's called in Slovene, Nechakaj na Maj, Don't Wait for the Month of May. Uh, it tells the story listen carefully, of a couple of students who are passionately in love with each other. Her name is Vesna. She is the daughter of a severe high school mathematics professor, a widower who lives with his unmarried sister, an old spinster maid who never had sex. He, the lover of the girl, Vesna, is Samo, an amateur sport planes pilot. Here is the much simplified plot of the film. When the two go onto a short skiing vacation together with a group of friends, Vesna's father, worried about the dangers of a vacation away from her family, asks his spinster sister to accompany his daughter and to keep an eye on her. Supposed to be the gatekeeper, the old lady, of course, ends up, typical comedy, as the one who brings the lovers together. After some misunderstandings which cause jealousy, the couple finds itself alone, but they merely exchange some kisses. Vesna doesn't want to engage in full sex since she wants a lifelong connection, not just a brief affair. But after they return home, 
Wes na telscher fader, dat si wants to marry. Fader sternly prohibits marriage till the couple finishes their studies. Wesna then elaborates a plan. She leaves false traces indicating that she is already pregnant. For example, she, as if accidentally, forgets on her bed a book on pregnancy, or uh, uh, she pretends to have morning sickness, and so on. And then escapes with Samo, with her love. When her father, as well as their noisy neighbors, learn the news, rumors explode about how and they all complain how promiscuous the young generation is, how they lack elementary moral uh, 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 restraints, and so on. Gradually, nonetheless, father and his sister break down and prepare with joy for the marriage of their daughter and for the child, buying a small bed, and so on. Then, however, when they are all gathered in front of their house, Vesna and Samo, the two lovers, unexpectedly return home, telling them that there is no pregnancy, since they didn't use the opportunity being alone in the mountains for illicit sexual pleasures. And now comes a wonderful point. The same gossipy neighbors and stern moralists who deal that point were saying, what a terrible young generation, they use every opportunity to have sex. Uh, now they totally shift their cards and sta starts with a dismissive sneer, uh, says things like, you see, the boy didn't even use his opportunity. I knew all the time he is of no use. You cannot even count on today's generation, and so on and so on, you know. Even Vesna's father reacts in a disappointed way. He, the conservative disciplinarian, when, when, when Samos, the boys, the lovers, mother drops by, uh, she, he, the great disciplinarian, shouts at her, what kind of son did you raise? He, did, he didn't even know how to get my daughter pregnant. She is not worthy of her, and so on and so on. Then you have something wonderful. The couple of lovers runs away from this confusion. They go on the plane, this small sport plane, and there Vesna whispers into his eye some words that we don't hear, and the end of the film. Of course, one can guess these words are, now you can fuck me, or something like this, no? But, but uh, what I like here is how the strategy of the girl in faking her pregnancy is pretty complex. Its goal is not just to bring her family to accept her marriage by way of confronting them with a fake fait accompli. It concerns also the inner psychic economy of the couple's love relationship, how to bring themselves to perform sexual act. That is to say, it is evident that Vesna doesn't want to follow the path of the simple transgression of violating the norm imposed by the father. She, her strategy is not, okay, we'll do it, and then we'll violate the paternal or injunction, and then the father will have to accept it to avoid the scandal, you know, like, I'm pregnant, I have to get married. Uh, no, she doesn't want to defy the big other, his authority. What she wants is not only to have sex within legitimate coordinates, that's why she rejects sex before marriage, but even more perversely, she wants to be forced into sex by the very authority whose function is to prohibit it. 
So in this way, she does the opposite of what young lovers usually do. Instead of keep, keeping the appearance of chastity and engaging in sex discreetly, out of others' view, she engenders the false appearance of illicit sex while in reality persisting in chastity. The premise is that we are not hypocrites who pretend to be poor and chaste but secretly engage in full sex. On the contrary, we are hypocrites who pretend to enjoy illicit sex while secretly preferring chastity. I found this a wonderful reversal, and I'm tempted to act like this. Isn't it wonderful that in front of others, yeah, I fucked her, whatever, and then you go home and read Hegel's logic or whatever that <laughs> brings true pleasure, you know. So, the false appearance of illicit pleasures generates obscene expectations which are disappointed. And at this point, the girl can finally engage in sex obeying the obscene injunction of the big other. Why? Because, again, all this function only if we have the big other which plays the double game. Officially, it tells you no sex. Secretly, it tells you, but do it, violate it. And what Vesna wants to do is to have this implicit order openly. No? She said, no, I want the big other openly to tell me what are you waiting? Get fucked, you know, and then I will do it. It's a wonderful strategy. This strategy, again, lays bare the ambiguity of the paternal authority. It forces the authority to openly display its obscene underside. At the same time, it demonstrates how a successful sexual act is not just a matter of intimate passions, but has to be mediated through the big other of some symbolic authority. Now, let me return for a moment to the film's climactic moment, when the couple of lovers, Vesna and Samo, escape their families. The, you re, I mentioned them, you remember, the moralistic neighbors whose main business is to poke their noses into other people's <laughs> affairs. They began to spread rumors that the girl is pregnant. They condemned the couple's immoral way of life. The couple returns home, and then, when it's clear that they did not engaged in illegal, illegitimate sex, the same gossipy neighbors react critically. Like, you see, the boy didn't even use his opportunity. I knew it all the time. He's of no real use, and so on, and so on. This reaction of the gossipy neighbors, again, provides a perfect example of how superego works. It exerts pressure to impose sexual constraints, to impede sexual contact, however, Beneath this surface appearance, its true injunction is, do it, enjoy it. I want you to do precisely what I am prohibiting you to do. In other words, you are guilty if you violate the prohibition, but you are even more guilty if you obey it, which explains the superego paradox, formulated clearly by Freud. The more you obey the commands of the superego, the more you are guilty. Freud brings this fundamental ambiguity of the superego agency, when you violate the moral standard, you are guilty. When you don't use the opportunity to violate it, you are even more guilty to the extreme. The superego is basically saying, in any case, you are guilty. Now, let me complicate. Where are we? Sorry. Yes, we have time. Let me complicate matters a little bit more. This constitutive guilt 
which cuts across the terms of the alternative. If you are guilty, you are guilty. If you are innocent, you are even more guilty. Accounts for another reversal of common sense, which concerns what Freud called strafbedürfnis, the need to be punished. The weird satisfaction provided by a painful punishment. It is not the crime which causes the guilt feeling and punishment. It is the need to be punished which generates guilt feeling and gives birth to criminal intentions. Where then does this original need to be punished come from? Instead of grounding it directly in some kind of primordial masochism, striving for pleasure in pain, Freud proposes a more complex scenario which concerns his basic matrix of socialization of entering a legal order. It is, you know, the myth of the primordial father. It is not only that, in a pseudo-Hegelian way, the legal order needs occasional transgressions, crimes, in order to assert its authority through punishing the perpetrators. All of us, also those who never perpetrated any crime, are constituted as legal subjects through being considered as potential criminals. And that's the underlying thesis. It's much more refined than that apparently simple story, you know, like in our fantasies we killed our fathers or whatever. The idea is that to be a legal subject, subjected to legal order, means to be potentially in your desire a criminal. Freud elaborated this scenario in his well-known analysis of Dostoevsky's Karamazov brothers, in which a group of brothers is, as you all know, suspected of <laughs> killing their father, an obvious, almost a figure of primordial father, an obscene, enjoying father. Here is a quote, a pretty nice quote, a longer one, I'm sorry, from uh, uh, Karamazov brother, sorry, from, from Freud's study, Dostoevsky and Parisid. I quote, quote from Freud. It is a matter of indifference who actually committed the crime. Psychology is only concerned to know who desired it emotionally and who welcomed it when it was done. And for that reason, all of the brothers, except the contrasted figure of Alyosha, but I don't buy here Freud, you know, that's nonetheless a little bit of sympathy I have for Dostoevsky. Do you know that Karamazov Brothers is uh, an unfinished novel, no? And you know they found notes of what would have gone on. You know what would Alyosha, the pure saint, become? Uh, sorry? Almost, yes, a terrorist, a terrorist, yes, a revolutionary terrorist. No, So uh, 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 maybe he wasn't totally bad, Dostoevsky, no? Okay, but uh, so... Uh, they are all equally guilty. The impulsive sensualist, Dimitri, the skeptical cynic, uh, Ivan Karamazov, and the epileptic criminal, I think that half illegitimate Brando. In the brothers Karamazov, there is one particularly revealing scene. We all know it. In the course of his talk with Dimitri, Father Zosima, the old saint figure, recognizes that Dimitri is prepared to commit suicide and he bows down at his feet. It is impossible. This can only mean that the holy man is rejecting the temptation to despise or detest the murderer, and he humbles himself before him. So Dostoevsky's sympathy for the criminal is boundless. It goes beyond pity, which the unhappy, wretched person has a right to. 
A criminal is, for Dostoevsky, almost a redeemer. Someone who has taken on himself the guilt which must have been otherwise borne by others. There is no longer any need for one to murder since he has already murdered. You see what's Dostoevsky logic. Let's say we all desire father's death. And the one who does it, does it for all of us. We can only, that's Dostoevsky's paradox. We can only be innocent in the eyes of law because another one did it for us. Uh, 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 in so, so, in so far as the primordial crime, the murder of the obscene father, is constitutive of the social body kept together by some law, the definition of an innocent subject of the law is someone who no longer needs to kill since another one, the sacred murderer, already did it for him realizing his desire. We are thus incorporated into a legal order through crime and guilt. A subject of law is by definition a potential criminal. This shared guilt, which constitutes the universality of legal citizens, brings us back to, the, to this idea that, uh, uh, that the law itself has to be prohibited. What has to remain prohibited is the criminal underside of the law, the what Benjamin would have called not divine but mythic violence of its instauration. This prohibition works by way of transposing pressure onto the subject. The subject has to be perceived as a priori guilty in order to maintain invisible the guilt, obscene violence of the law itself. However, in order to function, this transposition has to assume two forms. First, we have the guilty subject who effectively committed the crime, and then we have the innocent bystanders who profited from the crime since the criminal's act delivered them from the need to murder. In this sense, as Freud wrote it, the criminal is almost a redeemer who has taken on himself the guilt which, mu which must otherwise have been borne by others. By committing a crime, he sacrifices himself for the benefit of the other. In order, so the notion of, let me do, here do a short improvisation on the notion of sacrifice. The notion of sacrifice, usually associated with Lacanian psychoanalysis, is that of a gesture that enacts the disavowal of the impotence of the big other. Like, uh, I mean, you find this, like, it's better for me to be guilty than to disclose the impotence of the big other. As you probably know, this was usually the logic of, of Stalinist show trials. No, what privately they told you is admit guilt in this way the party, uh, the party remains pure. I want to tell you another story that I used in some of my books, but which I think is a perfect example of this sacrificial logic. Uh, there are even two versions of it, namely of Bon Geste, a classical imperial melodrama. There was a film from 38, 
in Hollywood with Gary Cooper, and then I think recently there was a BBC or Granada, I don't know, remake. But it's a wonderful story. It's a story about three brothers living with a rich aunt, and all of a sudden uh, the aunt wants to show them some extreme, very valuable necklace, and for a second life, uh, light goes out and the necklace disappears. It's clear that one of the three brothers had to steal it. And uh, next day, all three brothers disappear, and they go to foreign legion, blah, blah. And then at the end of the film, I will not go into it, we learn the mystery. The guy, Gary Cooper character in the first version, the guy who did it, uh, the guy who did it was uh, saw one day before when this good aunt was visited by her evil brother uh, that the brother demands from her to pay an old debt to give to him this necklace. At the same time, he learned, this Gary Cooper character, that the necklace is a fake, that the aunt is already deeply indebted and uh, well, it would have been a scandal, you know, when she would try to repay her debt, but it would become clear that uh, the necklace... So he thinks out of love how to save the aunt by stealing it. Because by stealing it, the myth would remain that it was worth. You know, you steal something, why? Not because it's worthy, but precisely to create the false impression that it was worth stealing. By stealing it, you prevent the disclosure that it was worthless to steal. Then, let me go on. There is then, apart from this guilt, the virtual guilt of the innocent bystanders, of the collective which profited from the necessary crime. The Freudian paradox, the more you are innocent, the more you are guilty, holds for them. The more they are innocent of the actual crime, the more they are guilty for enjoying its fruits without paying the price for them. Here, superego pressure enters, capitalizing on this guilt in a very specific way. The superego pressure does not squash the subject's individuality. Its effect is not to immerse the subject into a crowd where his individuality is dissolved. On the contrary, and here I refer to uh, Etienne Balibar, who proposed this reversal. You know, standard classical Altisser's formula, how, uh, the, uh, how uh, ideology uh, interpolates uh, individuals into subjects. Balibar's formula is that superego interpolates subjects into individuals. In what sense? Superego addresses me as a unique individual confronting me with my guilt and responsibility. Don't escape into generalities. Don't resort to circumstances. Look deep into your heart and ask yourself, where did you fail with regard to your duties? This is why superego pressure gives rise to anxiety. In the eyes of the superego, I am alone. There is no big other behind which I can hide. And I am guilty as charged because of the very position of being charged makes me formally guilty. If I plead my innocence, it only signals my additional guilt for denying guilt. Now you will say these are 
these are exaggerated speculations. What has this to do with our actual experience? Ah, I think that precisely today's society functions like this. It exemplifies perfectly this type of superego individualization. Ecology, political correctness, poverty, up to indebtedness, being in debt in general. How does predominant ecological discourse address us? Precisely as a priori guilty, indebted to mother nature, under the constant pressure of superego agency, which addresses us in our individuality. What did you do today to repay your debt to nature? Did you put all newspapers into a proper recycle bin? Did you put all the bottles of beer or cans of Coke in a separate recycle bin? Did you use your car where you could have used a bike or some means of public transportation? Did you use air conditioning instead of just opening wide your windows and so on and so on? You see, this is today's superego, just this endless deep probing, did you do all your duty and why is this ideology? I claim it's ideology because precisely it obfuscates you from looking my God, in this way, you know, when you said, what about society, big companies? Ah, the answer of social superego is, oh, who are you to talk about society in general? What about you? Did you do this? Did you do that? And so on. It's a perfect ideolo ideological machinery. And uh, uh, again, as I just said, the ideological stakes of such individualization are easily discernible. I get lost in my own self-examination instead of raising much more pertinent global questions about our entire industrial uh, civilization. The same goes, I claim, for the endless politically correct self-examination. Was my look at the flight attendant too intrusive and sexually offensive? Did I use any words with a possible sexist undertone while addressing her and so on and so on? And you know, this is also what I think it's false in this uh, white middle class endless probing into ourselves. Was I secretly racist? Did I use, when I spoke with my African American friend, when I mentioned, I don't know, when I mentioned that black door, black window, <laughs> did it have a, you know, like the basic point is it's really. I met some of the more you probe into yourself, the more you try to clarify, bring out your guilt, it's an endless task, the more you are guilty. And uh, my point is that uh, there is something fundamentally wrong about this. Uh, so let's go on. Uh, uh, the, you know where you can see the lie of it? How, when you probe into yourself in this superego way, how self-criticism is mixed with joy when you discover that your joke was no innocent. Like, oh, I got it. You see, there also I was a little bit politically incorrect or whatever, and so on and so on. As for charity, recall how we are all the time bombarded by messages destined to make us feel guilty for our comfortable way of life, while children are starving in Somalia, they are dying unnecessarily from easily curable diseases. Messages which simultaneously offer an easy way out, like you can make a difference. Give five, mo five dollars monthly to a, an anonymous black orphan and you will make someone happy and so on and so on. Again, the ideological underpinning is 
here easily discernible. Maurizio Lazzarato's notion of indebted men provides a general structure of subjectivity as indebted subjectivity, as debt, this endless guilt, debt constituting me. So uh, now comes the conclusion. The, the message of the message of is here is that how can we get rid of this guilt? Precisely by fundamentalism, by crowd formation. So crowd formation is not a superego formation, I claim. It's precisely a wild way to step out of this structure of guilt. In a crowd formation, we, we encounter a kind of the return of the repressed, of the mythic violence. And anxiety and guilt disappear. Anxiety and guilt uh, disappear, which is why I claim that, and that's the miracle, that I spoke with some people in a strange way, they didn't know who I was, who were violent nationalists. And they really embodied this superego paradox, because their message was, insofar as we were guilty, sorry, insofar as we tried to be, let's call it politically correct, decent, we felt more and more guilty. The moment we become brutal nationalists, that is to say, and that's what I add, the moment we become really guilty, in the sense of really doing horrible things, we experience ourselves as innocent. So again, uh, the more you are really guilty, the more you are innocent. And here I claim, I will tell you something horrible here now. Uh, here. This is what I find wrong about this eternal Western guilt, or are we Islamophobic? You know, like, are there, and so on and so on. Uh, I claim that this is, again, another superego pressure felt by some, like, you know, ooh, did we offend uh, Muslims in this way, in that way, and so on and so on. And uh, I claim that, that this is why it's a strange game going on here. Like the more we try not to offend Muslims, the more they claim we offend them. The more they play this superego role. Oh, you apparently respect us, but you remember what you said this and so on and so on. It's the same. It's the same endless process. Uh, so, uh, uh, okay, I will tell you an example from Turkey. When I was there, uh, you know, they. I was there a week or two after uh, Euro after in Switzerland they have that uh, referendum prohibiting the building of mosques. Oh, sorry, of minarets, only of minarets, no? And they were all, oh my God, we see, we see the falsity of Europe, Europe is racist, blah, blah, blah. And then I did an interview with some TV station news where the guy asked me, no, how do you comment this? Like he expected from me some big critical comment, you know. We see now the hypocrisy of Europe and so on. But was it you, Billent, or another Turkish friend who told me, but wait a minute, in Turkey we have a law which prohibits the building of any new non-Muslim church objects with the exception of renovation of historical monuments. monuments. So, you know, and 
after the TV show. I told this to the guy who... But wait a minute. Why were you asking me this when obviously you have a much harsher law? Like the corresponding law would have been, I don't know, to allow building churches but prohibit Catholic churches, church towers, no? And he didn't have a good answer. He went into they all, all the time. When you catch racists, they all the time claim uh, you, the, you should look at it in concrete circumstances, that the circumstances are different. I have no doubts that if they were to catch somehow 110 years old, whatever, Hitler in some Argentinian or Peruvian jungle and accuse him of Holocaust, he would have said you shouldn't tear Holocaust out of its concrete circumstances, conditions. No, But what I am saying is just that uh, with all my respect from Islam, don't misunderstand it. I just think that this eternal fear that we are Islamophobic is not the right way. It makes us more and more guilty, and as Freud always emphasized, guilt is always justified. We are guilty because this procedure is false. It doesn't really clear us. You know, like uh, for me, it's just, uh, it's the same, in the same way as politically correct obsession with was I a sexist and so on. I think just in an inadvertent way uh, reproduces sexism and so on and so on. Or to be very vulgar for me, the right way out of sexual harassment is not to instantly ask, you know, to a girl whom you're trying, or a man or a dog, whatever, I'm open here, whom you're trying to seduce, you know, like, did you, did I offend you or whatever, but the art is to do it even openly in a vulgar way it can, you know, the point is not to get caught in this vicious cycle of probing into it. Was I, because, uh, uh, okay, no, let me not get lost into this. What uh, what I simply wanted to say is that uh, uh, is that uh, this endless self probing is for me just an inverted form, maybe the most violent form today of Eurocentrism. Because you know, a radically politically correct guy, you know what his answer would have been probably to this Turkish? He would have said, yes, but they are victims of history, they are exploited by ice, so they have the right to, while we as white men, a priori guilty, we blah, blah, blah. So, but you know what's the secret presupposition of this? It's that the other is so stupid that they are simply victims of circumstances. Why? Did you notice how this defense of our Western guilt really reproduces the old cliche that only we Western people have the access to proper universality? We are fully responsible free agents, which is why we, you know, it's the same I probably already told you this story. The, way, the same problem when I noticed in the United States how which ethnic group is allowed to assert its peculiar, peculiar uh, ethnic identity. If Native Americans do it, it's perfect. If blacks do it, it's okay. Then things get so-so. If Italians do it, ah-ah. Uh -uh. But then if... Uh, like uh, wasps, white uh, Anglo-Saxons do it, Protestants, it's fascism. Oh, you are not allowed to. Now, I'm, I'm saying that this guilt of us, like they are allowed to because they were oppressed, we were, uh, this is false guilt. Because 
prohibiting me to assert my peculiar, like, you know, if I organize dancing some German or English dances, it's almost, you are a fascist. Did you notice how if we assert our particular culture, we are a fascist? If the others do it, it's emancipation. Now, uh, I'm not a right-winger would say, you see, this is why political correctness is not right. This is why, like, you know, the white, intelligent, white, racist, anti-immigrant argumentation is, we just want the same things as you multiculturalists are ready to allow to the blacks, you know. We want... In the same way that we should protect black, Jewish, Arab, whatever, Muslim identity, why don't we whites have the right to protect our identity? No, of course I reject this. But what I'm saying is that in this prohibiting us to assert our identity, it's only apparently modesty. The obverse of this modesty is an extreme arrogance. It's that we don't have the right to assert our identity because we are universal. We are universal, and as such, we can save the others, we can see where we are guilty, and so on. This is why I also see a humiliating aspect in, you know how, whenever there is a horrible thing going on in some African country, the first reaction of leftist white liberals is, oh, it must be the effect of colonization, you know. Like, they were all so glad in the case of Rwanda, and in that case, to avoid a misunderstanding, it was totally true in Rwanda that the key was the colonization. Who was the boss there? The Dutch? I don't know who, but the point is that, that the, the, the Hutus and Tutsis, Hutus, uh, no, Tutsis, I think, were privileged, English-speaking by, and, uh, and it's true that even the violence was directly triggered. It's a very dark story. Uh, even a guy whom I don't like very much, uh, you can see why. Bernard-André Lévy, I asked him after one round table, tell me, Mitterrand, and Bernard-André Lévy was friendly with Mitterrand, Mitterrand, Rwanda, he said, guilty. The French openly helped, who were the bad guys, Hutus or who, the majority, to kill the Tutsis, you know. It was horrible, why? Because uh, Hutus were more francophone, no? they see this as a chance to widen the French domain there. But what I'm saying this is this, that this blaming Europeans, their colonial machinations, whenever in Africa something horrible happens, okay, first I agree that we have to bring this house, absolutely. But you know what worries me, that beneath it is the same patronizing attitude, as if, if we no longer can be burden of the white man, you know, we at least can be the, if we longer can be exemplary good men, civilizing others, it's as if the ultimate racist fantasy of left liberals is that we can at least, immediately I finish, we can at least be the ultimate bad guys, you know. Like, like beneath this denial that it was their guilt, it's simply a denial that they can be a responsible agent. They are like children, they are controlled like by circumstances, it's our machinations, it's an extreme arrogance beneath this. So again, I think that the true respect for Muslims is to treat them as adult people and openly criticize them. Otherwise, this constant fear of homophobia, you are patronizing them. 
And again, the only way to treat the Africans is to treat them as adult responsible people, not to play this disgusting game, oh, it must be, ah, we are always guilty, and so on and so on. Okay, maybe I talk too much, it's... You do. ...states is any less a false polarization mm -hmm. than what Lenin faced in a much more titanic struggle where millions of people are shooting each other, workers called on by the left to go and fight each other and shoot each other down. Mm -hmm. Lenin jumped into the abyss. It was oh, not yeah. some gradual step-by-step -step thing. He jumped into the abyss and says, this is the communist spirit. That's what you need to do. To hell with Obama. He's the commander-in-chief okay, of American sorry. imperialism. Look, can can we, we take your point, but follow. we're not discussing communism today. You know, we've discussed all sorts of other things. We have discussed communism so many times, <laughs> but so let's get on with it. No, 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 but wait a minute. I would nonetheless like to... First, that debate, you know, it was simply that I didn't have any other talks this spring in New York. I was ill and so on. I will do it. But you know what worries me a little bit? Because I know Raymond, I talked with some others. I also want to control the conditions of that debate. I don't want to step in, in with 800 people and to the stage event, which is obviously... Uh, organized to, I don't know, as a kind of a triumph. Uh, and I want to debate with him on equal terms, which means I don't want to enter an event. I want to know how that event was organized, who was called, who was invited, and so on and so on. Sorry, I'm not ready to do an event like that. Point two, why, point two, why, why do you think, no, 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 sorry. point two, I didn't mean this. Point two, why do you think that debate is so mega, mega crucial or whatever? I, I, I have, I have, I have here with all my sympathy, I wrote an introduction to the book by Avakian, you maybe remember, and so on. But sorry, I will tell you something of a common sense now. The way they built his cult of personality, the way they celebrated. I'm sorry, I read his text. He is not at the level of that. He's not a genius, he pretends to be. Well, then come and say it. Okay, okay, thank you, thank you. Okay. No, 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 but nonetheless, to talk yeah, about Obama and so on. But you see, that's the problem. Of, of course, I agree with you, we should exit the false binaries and so on. But all I'm saying about Obama, and I have no illusions about him, that with universal health care, he touched a point which is a disturbing point. And we should prolong the debate. Because I claim that in American ideological constellation, obviously, universal healthcare touches something which is traumatic for it. And that's the way you enter the public space. Otherwise, you are an elitist party of 1,000 people waiting for the big revolution. I'm not saying, I'm not saying we, should, we should simply accept Obama's, ter Obama's terms of the debate. But you should grab something as to Syriza. Listen, the fact is that Tsipras is demonized all around Europe, which means I don't care if he's sincere or not, but that's an opening. And as to Lenin, oh my God, I can tell you stories there. Yes, Lenin jumped into the abyss, but you know that then in the early 20s, do you follow Lenin there? He, he said, we are such a backward country, forget Communism, all we can do now is, our duty is to bring, he was very Eurocentric, Western civilization into Russia, and his preferred company were big capitalists. At some point, he even said, we should learn from big capitalists, our main enemy are small bourgeois with that. So Lenin, 
Uh, uh, read him, read him, read. It's extremely interesting reading Lenin's and uh, some who are definitely... Okay, now some proper theory. Why, no, 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 but wait, wait. Okay, okay, sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, uh, let me go to, okay, uh, the first one, you know. You also, of course, had Trotsky to do the dirty work yeah, but it, no, no, no. Wait a minute. You know what's for me the problem with the problem with uh, uh, the problem with Trotsky. I mean, I'm there almost. I read detailed books. You know what interests me? Trotsky from 24 till 1930, and it's a model of how to screw things up, frankly. <laughs> I mean, he was first so in love with himself. He simply believed in his charisma, you know, and I will, you know, like he will show himself in front of people. And he even, he was really, sorry to use for the 20th time that metaphor. Trotsky was like, already in 24 he was, you know, that stupid metaphor that I always use, a cat above the precipice, he just didn't notice it. I mean, it was a model of how not to do it. Not to mention the point that Trotsky is cheating a little bit, in the sense that if you look at his Trotsky's text in the 20s, sorry, in the early 20s, do you really think that Trotsky had a clear alternative? The conflict was Stalin, I know, at that point, what is a right-winger. Stalin was with Bukharin, you know. Okay, but let's not lose time on this, I admit it. Let's go to theory. Okay, when you mentioned superego, death drive, sadomasochism, and so on and so on. First, I would distinguished here things. I think that this circularity of, this is a good question, namely, I would not put a sign of equation between superego and death drive. I here follow Deleuze and even Lacan. Here, I think, Lacan, I don't think he reduces death drive to superego. I think that there is a certain repetitive dynamics of death drive, which absolutely shouldn't be reduced to superego. As to what you said about sadism, masochism, uh, Deleuze's contribution, and I'm here on Deleuze's side, I must say, is that they are not a symmetrical couple. He is opposed to the term sadomasochism. Uh, uh, so, uh, again, okay, let's not go into detail. The, the point the point is, I think, how to re not rehabilitate, how to conceptualize death drive outside even all outside not only of superego, but even outside of terms of masochism and so on and so on. I think this is crucial. And what's what I try to do it, for example, even in philosophical terms, linking it to, to linking it to superego and so on and so on. I think that uh, Death drive, basically, for me, uh, uh, has absolutely nothing. The key for me is what I always repeat, that if you really read closely even Freud, you see that death drive, if anything, is Freudian name for immortality. Death drive is not all that bullshit, ooh, I want to disappear, whatever. No, death drive is something which insists beyond life and death. Which is why I always repeat, if you want to learn about death drive, read, I'm sorry to tell you this obscenity, read Stephen King horror novels about the undead. The undead are pure figure of death drive. The undead who are not alive, but paradoxically also not dead, who are the living dead. That's the death drive. Something that goes on and on and on. And if anything, I think the expression political of death drive is for me, you know, when 
let's say revolution is losing, but then somebody says no. Even like Schwarzenegger, sorry, disgusting movie, uh, 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 Terminator. You know when he says, but I will be back, but I will be back. You know, this eternal return, undeadness. <laughs> this is death drive. Death drive is hope and so on. Okay, sorry. The, then, then the last one, uh, I mean, the, the, the second one about uh, uh, that, uh, no, also, yes, uh, Lenin and, uh, no, sorry, what was the other one? Uh, Lenin and... Uh, Zizek against Zizek. Yeah, but I didn't quite. Uh, 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 sorry, what was the precise, more precise? You see, when you ask me. Can you uh, summarize in one sentence? Ah, yeah. Yeah, first, uh, about this political theology, you know, let me nonetheless make this absolutely clear. I'm a materialist unconditionally. I, I, so, I, it's not that I'm playing jokes when I write about. Christianity and so on. But for me, the message of Christianity is precisely what dies on the cross, I repeat it, it's not Jesus Christ, it's, as Hegel knew it, it's God of beyond. What dies on the cross is any transcendent guarantee. What dies on the cross is the idea there is a higher power which is uh, controlling us and so on. And this is how I read Holy Spirit. Uh, in Christianity, what happens after Jesus Christ's death is no, oh, he went away, but don't worry too much, he will come back. No, nothing will come back. I read literally those lines in, in, in uh, I don't know which, uh, 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 which New Testament text where Jesus Christ said when they asked him, uh, how will we know that you come back? You know, when there is love among two of you, I am here. Nothing will happen. The, the, the whole point of Christianity is to see, to see in this utter defeat of Christ's death already a chance for freedom. You know, my syllogism of Christianity would give me this one. Let's say you are totally at a loss. You say, God died on the cross. What can I do now? I have no guidance. I don't know what to do. You know what's the Christian answer? Not be patient, Father is up there. No, the Christian answer it. But do you know what you said now? I'm alone, I don't, this is freedom, and this is divine gift for you, it's freedom, you know, nothing changes, it's not that God comes, and so, it's only in this way that I speak about, Christi that I speak about Christianity, as to, uh, as to the, uh, and, oh, uh, yes, sorry, when you mentioned Benjamin, no, why, uh, and Schmidt, I think it's absolutely crucial to avoid all problems, nonetheless to strictly distinguish what Benjamin called divine violence from all that Schmidt topic, you know, of... Yes, I did. Yeah, 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 that's... Talking about temporality. Yeah. Temporality of theology as opposed to a rupture that would be introduced. What, what, in okay, here we would have to go more into... What do... Into being more precise, because for me, the basic paradox of temporality is, and Freudian temporality begins like this, is retroactivity, you know. It's how the past itself, of course, not in a naive mystical sense, but the symbolic weight of the past can be, can be constantly changed. And for me, the key point is how to read it. The only way to read it is if you, that's what I always repeat, that's why I'm so fascinated by quantum physics, because it's the first model that I see of an open ontology, open in a more radical sense, that simply 
the work of creation is not finished. Which is why, to give you an indication of what I mean, uh, recently this came to me. You know uh, this idea. You know this polemics be, be, uh, be, uh, between uh, Niels Bohr and Einstein. You know when uh, Einstein said, God doesn't cheat. Like, we should rely on some basic laws of nature and so on. But uh, I think that here enters the most beautiful ontological consequence part of quantum physics, which is how you can ontologically cheat, you know, in the sense that you do something, but before it's registered, you can profit from it. And then, in other words, to put it like this, if you take into account that we have, after the wave function collapse, the constituted reality, but prior to it, this uh, the, uh, the quantum virtual reality, but, uh, what quantum physics allows for, and if we claim that God is the one who sees it all, the way it is, then the materialist, ironically, of course, answer to Einstein would have been that the lesson of quantum physics is, yes, God does not cheat, but God is constantly cheated. You know, God doesn't see what happens just beneath the surface. God is constantly ontologically cheated and so on. So nonetheless, uh, so you know why? Because, no, let me just, this is an important political point. Often I am attacked the last time by Richard Bernstein in a book on violence, that I celebrate some brutal violence and so on. You know what annoys me? And here I'm probably solidarity with you. You know what annoys me with these uh, secretly liberal pseudo-leftist friends of Benjamin? Benjamin is today in Incorporated, but a kind of aseptic Benjamin. You know, they all look how to read his notion of divine violence, and they want to make a sublime event. Nobody is hurt. I'm sorry. Read Benjamin. Whatever he means, we can debate about it by divine violence. But he means violence, where people are killed, extreme brutality, and so on. And of course, this all started with Homi Baba, I think. What Homi Baba did with a similar thing with Fanon, you know, how to, to, to make an aseptic, politically correct Fanon, not too violent, and so on. And again, it's the same. I, even Judith Butler is not clear here. I think she wrote somewhere that there is a paradox of some symbolic shift where no one is hurt, no physical violence, that's how she tries to reread divine violence. And the, the way to squeeze out of the harsh revolutionary commitment of Benjamin is incredible. Like in his polemics against me, Simon Critchley tries to totally, brutally reinscribe Benjamin's divine violence into liberal coordinates. He reads it as, when there is no other way, you have to apply a little bit of violence. But this is the standard liberal defense, you know, like try not to be violent, but when there is no other way, do it. But in this way, for him, violence is a problematic instrument which we should apply when there is no other way. But wait a minute, Benjamin says exactly the opposite. He says divine violence is an instrument without an end. The whole point of divine violence is that it's not, you know, like we are in a revolutionary process. We have there some soldiers of the enemy. Oh, my God, maybe we will have to shoot them or whatever. No, it's totally wrong. This is not Benjamin. It's incredibly how watered down, how, how, like, I think Benjamin and Fanon would have been two thinkers who needs rehabilitation today in what they originally were against this 
No, these political guys, you know, they want some kind of a revolution where no one will suffer. Somehow there will be a big shift and this shift will be so radical that nothing will in reality happen, you know, just some big... Uh, we have to, again, to return to, be, uh, to return to Benjamin here. Okay, shall we take another couple of questions? Oh, it's four o'clock. It's four o'clock. One question. One question. Ha ha ha. Ha ha ha. The gentleman at the back has been asking for some time now. Can you keep it uh, short, please? Very short, quite specific. You said uh, the way out of the kind of superego yeah. guilt trap was through crowd formation. No, no, the false way out. I'm not for. Ah, okay. So oh my God, I'm not crazy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you gave this example of nationalism, then I was asking, what is there a kind of non-negative way? No, 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 no. Because you know the problem with nationalism. What shocked me when I met those racist brutals? Probably those guys that I met in Belgrade once were even doing the weekend trips to Bosnia to do some killing. What shocked me is how innocent they sounded. No. It's as if you become a nationalist to be, and I already told this story, it may interest you. What shocked me is how nicely they, with their practice, refuted the standard liberal theory that these new ethnic fundamentalists are primitive guys who are afraid of the new freedoms of our developed capitalist world, you know, and they are afraid of this self-responsibility and they escape back into some primitive ethnic identity. No! The way they described to me their situation was wonderful. On the contrary, they experienced the politically correct, permissive, developed society as too oppressive, in vulgar sense. They told me, what society is this? I cannot smoke in public. I cannot beat my wife. I cannot rape a girl. It's horrible. Everything is regulated. I go to Bosnia, I can do whatever I want, you know. It's, it's, so it's the opposite. It's for them, it's this and uh, this. Again, brings me back to that Dostoevsky, eternal Dostoevsky point, you know, that the truth of our society is if, as Lacan turned it around, if there is no God, then everything is prohibited. In the sense that, can you imagine anything more in detail regulated than a politically correct hedonist community? You know, okay, you can do whatever you want, sexual practices, but, you know, healthy sex, uh, 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 jogging, and so on and so on. It's a, totally, it's a totally regulated life. The truth of our permissivity, I already quoted this, when I flew across the Atlantic, I read in Hemispheres United magazine, appraising sex. And healthy sex. And they claim, you know, like, uh, if you often make love, it will turn your muscles and your, it's good for heart circulation. They even went to, if you give deep French kisses, uh, your muscles here will be firmer. And when old, you will not be dri dripping saliva and so on. I mean, this is horrible. This is horrible, this healthy sex, you know. Sex must be unhealthy. You must be feeling terribly guilty. With, like, the world should fall apart at the horrors that I'm doing. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Yeah, but this is not the crowd in the Freudian sense. Ah, ah, ah. Here, I will, here I'm a quite naive Marxist leftist and claim what Freud is describing in his crowd formation, this immersion into unity and so on and so on. This is, there are crowds and crowds. Because let's be very specific. Freud gives two, ex maybe that's how I would begin with it. Remember that Freud gives two examples of artificial crowds, church and the army, and he treats them as the same. Well, I think there is a crucial opposition there. 
Church is a totally different type, uh, uh, hierarchic, organized. Army is an egalitarian crowd. I think you have class struggle there. I'm for the army against the church, but that's <laughs> it. On Friday, the 